I remember it like it was yesterday. Me and my stepdad pulled up to this busy intersection and um, he basically parked his van in the middle of that intersection or at the traffic light of that intersection, turned the, turned the ignition off, looked at me. He had tears in his eyes or his eyes were welling up with tears. And he said to me, Matt, I just want you to know your mom's disappointed. And he put it all the onus on my mom. I'm sure it was probably him too. He probably had something to do with that. He said, your mom's really disappointed that you didn't go to college. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. I've got my friend Art Williams with me today. Art is a business owner in Portland, Oregon. He's got a barbershop up there that is so much to the community. It is located on Martin Luther King Boulevard. Uh, I wanted to have Art on for Black History Month because he is just making an impact in his community. And it is a conscious decision that he made where he located his business, how he runs his business, how he performs outreach in the community, how he has taken this barbershop and made it about black health and and awareness of hypertension. You're going to hear a little bit about that. He's also got an interesting career because while he has these this business in Portland, he also goes on the road with actor Aldous Hodge, uh, who has been a past guest of 10,000 No's. Um, he travels with him to film and TV sets, and he's a family man as well. So he makes sure that he is still with his, his wife and his kids, and then he is also traveling. He's also got the business. He's got tons of wisdom. He played uh, arena football for a while. He He came from nothing, and really all that was expected of him growing up was graduate high school, if you can do that. Really no money. Uh, You're going to hear all about that. And he, he just transcended what was given to him. And um, it it really, it, it warms my heart when I have a friend like this who just comes in and his essence will come across to you, even with just the sound waves coming at you. Uh, Just a, a really tremendous heart, great man. I hit it off with him immediately upon meeting him last year. I'm excited for you to hear him, but I want to share something with you first. Before we jump in with today's episode, I want to ask you something. How'd you land here at 10,000 No's? Maybe you know today's guest personally, or maybe you've heard of them, or maybe you know me and you've been listening for a while, or you're just dropping in for the first time to check this thing out. Either way, I'm guessing that in some way you're looking for something. You're looking for answers about how to be better at what you do, how to get over a breakup or a letdown, or if you're some type of creative or an actor like me, you're looking for some inspiration, some magical quote that's going to lift you up, get you through your day or your week. If any of this applies to you, check out the link in the show notes for the 10,000 No's Insiders community. This is something I launched at the top of 2021, and in a nutshell, this is why I did it. Tons of people write into the show. It helps them. They're inspired, blah, blah, blah. But then what? What do they do with it? Who do they talk to about it? And that's essentially what it is. A group of like-minded, go-getting, mostly creatives, but all people who are in some career track that just doesn't have a very obvious one-size-fits-all approach. So that's all we did. We set up an intimate group online. It's a private Facebook group coupled with live Zooms weekly where people just get into it. And sometimes that means specific business strategies. Sometimes it's about mindset and approach. And sometimes it's just about unloading on the group and having people that care, but who are outside of your personal domain, keeping you accountable. So you actually do the things that you need to do in order to not only succeed in a competitive field, but keep your soul intact while doing so. You can get more information at the link, but here's what some current members are saying about it. Another thank you to everyone for the help. The group helped me get in a great place before my audition, follow my gut, and take a risk by breaking the rules. Thank you for this amazing group of humans. 
The accountability of our community was just the nudge I needed. Sent a draft to my editor today. By the way, the woman who said that was a total baller at Nike for 30 years, and she's now in a second career as a writer. After our group, I felt so good, it changed my entire mentality. I didn't even realize the negative energy I was putting out there. That's just to give you the spirit. And that's not even mentioning the amazing VIP guests that drop in to lead the group with me once a month. Many of them are past guests of this show, all of them immensely impressive. If this sounds like something that might be of interest to you, go check out the link for 10,000 No's Insiders Community. But for now, let's get to the show. Man, I think, the well, the barbershop for me, honestly, started when I was 12. Um, when when I was 12, I would go work in a barbershop, just sweeping the floor on the weekends. Um, I'd work with, well, 12, 13, I'd work with my stepdad early in the mornings because he had a janitorial business. So we'd go clean uh, department stores and uh, some restaurants really quick before they open Um and then he'd just drop me off at the barbershop. We'd, we'd probably start at 5 a.m. He'd drop me off at the barbershop around noon. And I would stay in the barbershop from noon until whenever they closed, just sweeping the floor and watching them, uh, watching them cut hair, watching just everything. It was the, the, the conversations in the barbershop. It was just, it started when I was that young. And when, by the time I was 15, I knew I wanted to be a barber didn't really know how I was going to be it, but I knew I wanted to be a barber. And so you fast forward to 27. When I was 27 years old is when I became officially a professional barber. And um, and I, my first day working in the barbershop, I was it felt like home. So I worked in a barbershop. Um, well, I've been a professional barber now for 17 years. Um in June of this year, it'll be, dang, it'll be 18 in June of this year. Uh, I've owned my own barbershop. I've owned a barbershop. Two, I've owned two barbershops. The first barbershop I co-owned, both barbershops. The first barbershop I co-owned was called Champions Barbershop. Started it with a friend of mine who was a barber as well back in 2008. And then um, that ran good for about nine years. And I sold my interest and decided to just kind of venture off into my own thing. And um, was that also in Portland at that point? Yeah. And all and, of it's been in Portland. But but growing up, you were in Florida. So that barbershop you were in growing up, that was down in Florida. Yeah. Right? The yeah. barbershop okay. I was in um, sweeping every day. I, I grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida. In, in the barbershop I grew up in or the barbershop I yeah pretty much grew up in, um, it was a block away from a historical black college university. Um, Bethune Cookman College is the name of the HBCU. And uh, it was right there, man. So you get to see all the college kids come in and out, the football players come in and out and uh, basketball players. I mean, it was, I think back to those moments, I can remember the music that would be playing. I mean, this was, you know, 80s, you know, well, like 90s. You know what I mean? Like late 80s, early 90s. Um, I just remember, man, just the nostalgia, just the smell of the barbershop, the smell of the hairspray or the oil sheen, um, the sound of the broom sweeping up the hair and all the different conversations and all of the conversations. I mean, you learned everything you've ever wanted to know about the community in the barbershop. You know, I met college students that, um, probably didn't even know they were they were indirectly impacting a young person. Uh, the football player, the football players always stood out to me because they were like they would come in, they'd be the loudest, they'd be the biggest, you know, <laughs> they'd be the funniest a lot of times. And uh, you just, I just learned you learned so much. I learned how to storytell in the barbershop, believe it or not. <laughs> so. Uh, not just cut hair. And, and so that just became a really big part of my life. Um, and I knew without a doubt, that's what I wanted to do. And after I, after I ended up going to college, I went to university to Florida, not Florida state, uh, Portland state university. I wanted to go to Florida state, but <laughs> went to Portland state university on a football scholarship and to kind of took the long way. I, I cut hair while I was in college, um, in the dorms, you know, and, uh, 
it got it, it started to get old after a while because you know you couldn't hear for broke college students. It's <laughs> like five bucks a haircut, man. You know you can't can't survive off of that. But you know you so, can get a Monday Domino's pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so you so you growing up. Like let let's say pre going in and working in that barbershop, did you always think like I want to I want to play in the NFL? Was that ever a dream? Was, was football ever a dream, or was football always kind of like I love the sport, um, but the, the, I I see beyond it. And if I get if I do play pro um, for a while, eventually I'm going to come back to this. Like I'm interested in that where, where, when you were a kid, what were you dreaming about? Because it's, it's also cool to hear that you were a young kid working in a barber shop, but you remember the football players coming in. I'm sure that's also because you were obsessed with the game and you were great at it. Yeah. Well, I don't know about great at it, but <laughs> it definitely was football was, was, the closest to my heart than probably anything. Um, and, and like my mom would, if my mom was here right now, she would tell you like that I could not watch a football game. Once I started playing pop Warner football, little league football, I could not watch a football game without putting my helmet on and sitting in a chair on a Sunday with my helmet on watching the football game or walking around the house with my mouthpiece in my mouth. It, I mean, it was, I think about it now and it's the funniest thing ever, but that was passion and that was love for the game. And um, I started playing football when I was eight. And so it just kind of started to grow on me. And, but um, it was definitely my very, very first love. Like I would trade everything for football back in the day uh, when I was a kid. And, and as I went through high school and when I got to college, uh, things changed a little bit, you know, you got more responsibilities. And, um, by the time I got to college, I realized that, man, this, this could be, um, a lifestyle for, or not a lifestyle, but this could be a career for me if I really apply myself to, to it. And, um, and I, I, I dedicated, I, I don't know, by the time I got to high school, by the time I was 15, 16 years old, I already knew I wanted to be a barber. Uh, so my love for football started to kind of fade a little bit, just slightly. Um, but when I was in high school, I was, I was a highly recruited uh, wide receiver. It, it wasn't, I don't think, well, I know recruiting wasn't like it is today it was a whole different ball game back then you actually had to sit down and talk to coaches they would come visit you at school they would send you letters they would you know phone calls my mom would be on phone calls for hours at a time talking to recruiters and I never counted but according to my mom I had 52 scholarship offers to play division one football wow so she would know since she was basically on the phone talking to people and and uh I, I do remember one phone call she was on the phone with uh the Michigan scout um I can't remember his name but my favorite scout of all of the recruiters that was recruiting me was uh man I don't know if he's still with us or not but John Stockstill used to be the office coordinator at Clemson University back in 94 95 93 94 95 and he uh, he was the first coach I ever talked to. And uh, he just kind of won me over right then. So if I was going to go to college after high school, Clemson would have been the place that I would have went to. Uh, but but um, so according to my mom, there's 52 scholarship offers. And all I wanted to do was be a barber. I didn't really I, – I wanted to play football, but barbering had kind of started to take over. And um, – but, you know, growing up in the, the small town that I grew up in, no one actually ever really talked to me about going to college. So I didn't think it was important. Nobody in my family had went to college. Um, everybody just kind of focused on finishing high school. That was the big part for us. And um, granted, I mean, my mom was, I was born in a situation where I was born to a 17, well, an 18-year-old 
girl, pretty much. Um, my mom spent her whole senior year in college pregnant. Uh, I mean, high school, sorry. Her whole senior year in high school pregnant. So I was almost kind of birthed into a situation where I was supposed to be a statistic, basically, at a young age like that. I'm a young mom like that. Um, what changed it for you? What, what ultimately got you to break the mold? Was it your mom? Was it football? Was it your drive? Was it a coach? Was it the barbershop? What got you eventually to break that mold and go where the bar was set to just finish high school to you mm-hmm. go on and you're a college grad and you're a business owner? And uh, wh- how did that happen? What do you think? I just didn't want to be... it. Well the fire was lit by my stepdad uh, who, you know, he passed away a couple years ago, but my stepdad, um, we were uh, driving to a job because I was working with him. Now, after I had graduated high school, I decided not to accept any scholarship offers. I just decided that barber school is what I wanted to do. And if I had to pay my way into, into barber school, then I would just continue to work with my stepdad and pay my way into barber school. Cause my mom refused to sign me up <laughs> for barber school. Uh, but I didn't know my mom was disappointed. And so one day I remember it like it was yesterday, me and my stepdad pulled up to this busy intersection and um, he basically parked his van in the middle of that intersection or at the traffic light of that intersection turned the, turned the ignition off, looked at me. He had tears in his eyes or his eyes were welling up with tears. And he said to me, Matt, I just want you to know your mom's disappointed. And he put it all the onus on my mom. I'm sure it was probably him too. He probably had something to do with that. He said, your mom's really disappointed that you didn't go to college. And uh, I was a mama's boy. So the last thing I wanted to do was, you know, disappoint my mom. And so I think it was the disappointment, knowing that my mom or thinking that my mom was disappointed with me is probably the reason why I decided that I would, it was definitely the reason why I decided I would go to college. Um, But once I got to college, my drive to not be a statistic is what kind of took over. Like I didn't want to go back home to Daytona Beach. I didn't want to be that person that got away and then came back and is doing nothing or something like that. You know what I mean? I didn't want to be that person. And so I remember calling home because football in college, it's a 24 seven job. Um, A lot of people kind of think that you go to college on a free education and it's just breezy for you because other people are paying, but your time is precious. And that's something that you can't ever get back. You can never turn back the hands of time. And so football took up so much of my time, my freshman and sophomore year. I remember calling home and telling my mom that I was ready to come home, like pretty much crying. Like, I can't do this anymore. This is just, I never have a break. And she said to me, you can't come back here. You know, not being mean about it, but just like, you cannot come back to Daytona Beach, Florida. So you need to finish college. And then I was just like, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. And so that's kind of like the tough love, I think, is what drove me. And then the fact that I didn't really, I didn't want to be that statistic. You know, I have, I know a lot of people that left and come back home and some of them didn't make it. Some of them are not even alive today, you know? So, um, that probably was my major drive. I just didn't, I, I just couldn't be somebody's statistic. And my, my assistant principal told me when I was a senior, I'll make sure you graduate from high school. I, don't, I just don't want to read about you in the newspaper on the streets. And so that was a little bit of motivation as well. I could, that kind of sat with me as well as I went through, as I went through college and, um, and I started to just realize that I needed to be a bet. I needed to be, I didn't want to be a statistic and I wanted to make my mom proud too. So, so, so you, first of all, I, lo- I love it. Um, it's, it's so, it's amazing. And what, you know, your mom gave you and I'm interested in when you got out, did you immediately go open a business? 
did you, you said, because you said you were 27 when you were actually a barber. What was the time after college? What was the progression that got you to your first barbershop? Um, you know, what was that period like? Well, I was in a, uh, I was in a relationship with, I was in a relationship that started like when I was a freshman in college. So her and I had dated, uh, basically our whole, my whole four, four and a half years in college. And so after football was over for me in college, I got a free agent invite to Pittsburgh Steelers and just did some workouts and some little bit of training camp. Um, and then I got released by the Steelers. And once I got cut from training camp, uh, I played arena football or it, I think it was, it was arena, it was indoor football and it was professional indoor football. And, um, I did that for just a year, I think, um, a season, a season. I feel like it was a season and a half, but it ended with a concussion. So <laughs> I'm almost positive. It, I know I did play. I, I played almost the whole season anyways, but, um, that I did that. And once that was over, I just decided that football just wasn't as important to me as it, as it needed to be. Cause the, the moment I got a paycheck for playing the game that I loved it, it, that's when I realized it became a business. You know, it was more of a business and it wasn't, wasn't much more to it after that. And so, um, I ended up in this relationship or still having this relationship. It went bad or we just broke up, went our separate ways. Um, and I just kind of found myself just in a, I don't know if it was depression or just sadness, like deep sadness. And one day I'm walking, um, down, I didn't have a computer at the time. So I'm walking to the library here in Portland. I'm walking to the big city library in Portland just to kind of apply for jobs because I felt like I, I mean, I'm at this place now, I'm a graduate college graduate. There's no income coming in anymore. I, I needed to, I needed a real job. And, um, I was working at Nike the whole time I was in college and a little bit after I had graduated from college. But once I started to explore the professional football, that's when like, I couldn't stay at Nike and do and do both. So um, I had to find a job. And when I I remember the day I was feeling real like sad about my where I was in life, I guess. I don't know. I'm. I don't even really, I don't remember how old I was at this time, like 25, 26, maybe. And um, I'm walking to the library and I just hear this voice in my left ear say, what about your dream of being a barber? And it was just like me and you talking right now. What about your dream of being a barber? And I stopped and I looked to my left and I was standing right in front of the barber school. So I just went in and signed up at the barber school that day, man, and started on, I think it was a Thursday. I went in and signed up and then I started barber school on that Monday. And, and it's kind of been just, this is what I've been doing ever since. This was back in 2003, I think, uh, 2003, 2002, 2003. And so I graduated from barber school in 2003. Um, I was managing at that time. I got a job while I was in barber school managing a watch store. And it was probably the best, one of the better, I mean, it wasn't better than Nike, but it was one of the better jobs I had because I learned to love watches. I learned a new love for watches and that I had never even knew. I don't even think I ever owned a watch until I started working at this watch store. And so, um, I'm working there and and it was a book. I read this book. I bought this book that kind of changed my life. I bought it. It took me about six months to read it or six months to even open it up to read it. I had bought it. It was called The Dream Giver. And um, I started to read this book and all of a sudden, man, it was, it just, everything started to remind me of my dream. You know, I'm already in barber school at the time. I'm just about to finish barber school when I decided to read this book. 
because I was afraid that once I ended up, once I got out of barber school, that although I knew I was good enough to be a professional barber, it was still scary because I was going to go from getting a paycheck every two weeks or whatever to depending on people to walk through the door and building the clientele to pay my bills. And so I was terrified, man. And, and I start, I read this book, man, and this book just moved me to a whole other place. And it, and it, I felt like it encouraged me to just take the chance again to just be a professional barber. So then I quit my job and just went in feet first. Um, what was the biggest professional barber? What was the biggest takeaway from that book besides just doing it? Or maybe that was it. But what was the biggest? Um, stepping out of familiarity. It was, it was a, it was, it was an allegory. The book was an allegory about a dude, a person or thing. It didn't even really tell you what it was, what he was, but, uh, he lived in the city of familiar. And so everything to him was familiar. So there was no real reason to leave the city because familiarity was safe and comfortable, but the book takes you through this journey of him taking these steps on this journey and the different obstacles that he would face on this journey. And like they, they use terms like border blockers. These were people that were stand at the, at the uh, beginning of a bridge that you needed to cross over to get to the other side. But, uh, and those border blockers could be parents, could be relatives, you know what I mean? And, and then you get over the bridge, you, you fight through the border blockers, you get to the bridge, you go over the bridge. Then you got this whole other level of opposition that you're facing. And so it was just that stuff. I don't know if I was just an adventurous person at that time, but I just knew at that point when I read that book and, and I, I read the book at work and I wasn't supposed to be reading at work, but people don't buy watches like shoes. So (laughs) (laughs) So I'm reading this book at work and I just realized like, man, this place I'm working at is familiar to me. Like, I don't want to leave this job, this paycheck that I get every two weeks. I was the store manager. So I was making more money than, than, you know, the employees that was working there for me or whatever. And so um, I just decided that, man, you know what? I don't want to, I don't want to stay here. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just, I'm just going to go ahead and I always wanted to be a barber. I'm just going to go ahead and take a chance. I've been poor before, so I know what it's like to be poor and I know how to, uh, resilient. I know how to, uh, persevere through it. Uh, I was poor my whole life. You know what I mean? My mom worked three jobs just to put food on the table before she ended up getting married to my stepdad. So from, and she didn't get married to my stepdad till I was 12. So from the ages of zero to 12, you know what I mean? I knew what it was like to be poor. So, um, so I figured, you know, I just take this chance. It was only me. I didn't have family or anything. So, And you open the, you open the barbershop. So I guess you have enough money to get, put a down payment on something, or, or I make sure you're leasing space at that point. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit, because I, I know some of this from, from having spoken to you, about the placement, the location of your current barbershop and how that neighborhood has changed and what that neighborhood has meant to you, meant to the black culture and in Portland and and how it has kind of uh, morphed with the times and and. Again, going back to this sense of community and you as the dope influencer and and really kind of, I think, having outreach to some of the youth in your community. Tell us a little bit about how that has changed and how that has changed your perspective of it in a good way or a bad way or anything. Yeah. So for 17 years, 18, hopefully soon, um, I've worked in a six block radius, three barbershops in a six block radius um, on Martin Luther King Boulevard in Northeast Portland. And and granted, I've only been in Portland for since 97. So, but it's still a long, that's still a long time. Uh, And I've watched 
Portland change. I've watched like gentrification and redlining is a serious, serious issue, probably around the world, uh, probably around the United States of America. But it's definitely I've watched it firsthand here in Portland. And when I first got to Portland, the first thing I asked was to go to the black barbershop. First thing I got off the airplane on July 27th, I mean, July 29th, 1997 at 11.36 a.m. And I asked, I asked coach to take me to the, to the black barbershop. Where's the black side of town? I had always been told there was no black people in Portland. And so <laughs> they were like, I remember when I was being recruited, um, there was once, once I turned down scholarships or decided I wasn't going to go to school, it was like a year later, there was schools that started to uh, kind of rejoin and get offered scholarships. And there was places like Arizona, UCLA, uh, Hawaii, um, University of Idaho. It, it was like, I had like 11, 12 choices. And, but I only chose, but I chose Portland State because it was a place where I would be, I felt like I would be forced to do homework if that makes sense. So my first two years of college, I spent in Santa Barbara. Um, and so my first two years of college was in Santa Barbara, which, which I had a lot of fun. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you've yeah. ever been to Santa Barbara, but <laughs> Santa Barbara is probably like paradise uh, without actually having to go to heaven. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, it was just kind of hard to, academically stay focused in Santa Barbara. So coming to Portland was, was definitely a strategic move for me because one, I wanted to work for Nike. And then two, I felt like if it rains here a lot, I would be forced to do homework. And so um, everybody, people was telling me, man, you need to go to UCLA or Arizona or Hawaii. Uh, why would you go to Portland? Like there's no, no black people in Portland. But anyways, the first place I wanted to go when I came to Portland was the black barbershop. Take me to the black side of town, wherever that is. And when I found out uh, there's a Martin Luther King Boulevard, I was like, that's it's got to be black people on Martin Luther King Boulevard. And um, my like, fortunately for me, my position coach just happened to be a black man who took me, who brought me to the black side of town to get a haircut. And so I was like, yep, this is where I want to be. And, um, and so ever since I've been a professional barber or basically from the time I've been here in Portland, but since I've been a professional barber, I've worked on Martin Luther King Boulevard and I've gotten really invested in the community, even though now the community is changing a lot. Um, one of the reasons why I refused to, when I had the opportunity to open another barbershop, I refused to go anywhere else. Like there was a bunch of different little metropolitan places you could go, counties and all that stuff you could go here in Portland that would have been um, very lucrative spaces to be in as a barber here in Portland. But I wanted to stay on the side of town where I knew uh, where black people were and where I knew that um, the community that I can impact the community and, and I'm sure like I could probably impact the community. We could probably impact the community no matter where we are. But because of the gentrification and the redlining, I was like, I want to be a black business in Portland that stays black in Portland, in the on the black side of what used to be the black side of town in Portland. And um, and I think what motivated me was Mr. Uh, there's a, an older gentleman here. He just turned 90. His name's Paul, Mr. Mr. Paul Knowles. They call him the, uh, the mayor of Northeast Portland. I mean, this dude's been around forever, man. Like he's, if you talk to him, I should have sent you a picture of me and him together. He came to my barbershop. So he, he ended up because of the pandemic, he ended up having to close his barbershop down because, um, he just wasn't prepared to invest the money to make all the updates that he needed to make in order to stay open. But he, his barbershop, he named his barbershop after his wife, his wife's, her name was Geneva. And so Geneva's was the first barbershop that I had ever heard of when I came to Portland. That was like the place everybody went to. 
you know? And so I met Mr. Paul Knowles and I, and I remember thinking, having a conversation with this guy and I was like, man, this is the dude I want to be like, like, I want to be remembered like Mr. Paul Knowles. I mean, he's still alive today, but everybody remembers Mr. Paul Knowles and every once in a while he'd make a, a cameo appearance in the barbershop. And it was like, Jesus just walked in. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so he recently came to my barbershop right before we started season, restarted season two in, um, in New York. He came into my barbershop, man. And I promise you, it was like, he really blessed my barbershop and he comes in and he gets a haircut and, I feel like I was, I met him millions of times, but I felt, I almost felt like he, the way he spoke to me about the shop, it was as if he was passing the torch to me. And, and I'm sure probably other barbershops and other barbers, if they hear this, they'll be like, no, he wasn't passing the torch to you. But it felt that way. And, and he just kind of, he blessed my barbershop, man. Like literally he's like, Jesus for real. And so uh, it was, that was a big moment for me um, that Mr. Paul Knox came into my barbershop. And, and I mean, he, he stayed black and stayed a black business in Portland through all the gentrification. I mean, I mean, he's been here for over 50 some odd years. So he's seen it all. And so I re- when when he and I was talking, I was like, man, that's the kind of business I want to be. I don't want to be a business that gets pushed out because it can't afford to be here or or it gets too, you know, all the black people, all the black communities getting pushed out to East Portland and stuff like that. And, and he was like, man, that's I put my stake in the ground and I said, this is where I want to be. And so basically that's exactly what I did from the time that I opened the first barbershop. It was important for me to be a staple in the community, a monument in the community um, and to be able to affect the community that I was in. And so I partnered with a bunch of nonprofit organizations that are still in our community that is still in the Northeast community um, of Portland. And there are a lot of like a black clinics uh, there's a black clinic called North by Northeast. Uh, they really, they give free healthcare to people that can't afford healthcare, basically people of color that can't afford healthcare, not just black people, but anybody, any person of color and hypertension is one of the biggest killers of black men in America. And so they started this program and they came to me and asked me if I would love, if I wanted to be a part of this program where they trained us as barbers and hairstylists to take blood pressures. And so we, we take blood pressures for our kid, for our um, students, I mean, our students, our clients. Um, and, and what's the best, you think about it, it's like we're, we're sitting here talking about all kinds of things on a daily basis in the barbershop. Why not talk about black health or just being healthy as black and brown people and where healthcare is definitely just like gentrification and redlining, it's not, it's not um, favorable to marginalized people. And so, uh, man, we just started taking blood pressures in the barbershop. It's called cuts and checks. And um, they, you know, it's like my contribution to, to black health. We also started a running club. Uh, My whole thing is just to help us all be healthier people to live healthier lives. Um, we, we partner with places like a self-enhancement Inc, which, um, they focus on what used to be inner city youth, but just at risk youth, they focus on, it's a fantastic program. I met my wife in that program. Um, well, not as a, she's always worked at that program, but, um, I met her because of SEI, I met my wife. So SEI has a huge place in my heart, um, and then we Union Gospel Mission, just a bunch of different. Like we've connected to a lot of organizations, only named like three right there. But we're connected yeah. to the Boys and Girls Club, all kind of organizations, free haircuts, all kind of stuff like that. That's amazing, man. I, I I love the way you talk about your your business because it's a part of you. It's an extension of you, and 
so the audience can hear you and I met on City on a Hill, uh, a TV show. And that's because you uh, work personally with Aldous Hodge, who's a past guest. Um, I want I want you to give because you're you know just to put it in context. Now that you're telling me about that book and the and going to from the familiar to you know something new, and when you cross over that bridge, you're met with challenges. You're also met with opportunities, and I think Aldous walking into your your barbershop that day. Uh, I know the story, but I would love to hear you tell the story because I can't let you leave without um, giving us your relationship because it's such a special friendship that you guys have. And I kind of got to meet you two together and really I bonded with you more before bonding with Aldis. And you guys have a I just I love you. I love your friendship. It's a work relationship, but it's but it it it. it it goes beyond that. It feels like family. And so I just want you to tell everybody how that even came about, because I think it's a pretty cool story. It's, it is, it, I can almost, I can't, it's, it's definitely, yeah, um, I can barely hold back my tears when I think about like um, the evolution of my relationship with Aldis. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I, uh, he was shooting a show here in Portland called, uh, Leverage. And I, I didn't even know like Portland had a film industry. I, I didn't, I was just working in a barbershop, but at, at that point, celebrities to me were just athletes, you know, blazers. I was, I was cutting blazer, uh, Trailblazer players, NBA players, and and because of my relationship with Nike, I got a chance to cut uh, football players and stuff like that. So I was connected. That was my connection to to celebrities, um, if you want to say. And Aldis uh, is here doing the show, and I and and they don't have a person on set that can cut his hair. Um, and keep in mind, like Portland's seventy six percent white, is statistically the whitest city in America. So his chances of finding their chances of finding him a black barber was zero, you know, at least, <laughs> you know, zero. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he's, uh, he's out one night and he sees uh, a friend of our, well, Martel Webster used to be a blazer and he sees Martel. He asked Martel who cuts his hair and Martel tells him who cuts his hair. And, um, then, then Martel uh, calls me or texts me, however you want to say it. He and asks me if he could give Aldis my phone number. Doesn't tell me who Aldis is. I'm just thinking, like, okay, cool, whatever. Like, it it's a referral. So I'm like, yeah, sure. Gives Aldis my number. He and I connect. He at this time I wasn't like I wasn't taking appointments. It was only walk-ins, so it was like you can walk in at, around this time, and I could probably get you. Aldis walks in, he sits, and he waits for probably about an hour before he gets a haircut. Um, but I still don't really know who he is. He sits in my chair. He tells me how he wants his haircut. I kind of, I kind of um, try to talk him out of the haircut that he wants because it just doesn't it what he had just didn't look good. It was, I was like, but he never <laughs> said he was on TV either though. Right. So I'm like, this young dude wants this, whatever. It, I mean, it just didn't, it was a, whatever. It was so, a disconnect. It was a disconnect. Yeah, it just, yeah, I yeah. was like, bro, you sure you want this? Like I could fade it here. and fade. He's like, nah, we got to, you know, keep it like this. And, we, and I was like, all right, he had a widow's peak and everything. And I was like, Bro, who's really rocking widows? You're like you're too young to rock a widow's feet right now. <laughs> if you're like, you know, sixty years old or something, maybe that might be different. But um, and so I cut his hair, and he really likes it. He pays me for the haircut, and then he asks me for a receipt. Like nobody had ever, in all my time of being a barber, nobody had ever asked for a receipt. And I was like, a receipt? Who wants? To? So, so I like literally. I go buy a receipt book just for him. And, and he's like, I just got to give it to the people. <laughs> you know, he still doesn't tell me what he does, but he likes his haircut. And then um, his mom 
likes his haircut because his mom at that time was basically his manager. She really likes his haircut and she's ecstatic that he found a black barbershop and a black barber to do his hair. And so he would come in probably every couple weeks and get his haircut. I'd write him a receipt, and he, you know, and it was just like a $20 haircut, right? You know, and he had tipped me and everything. And um, his mom, then he brings his mom in a few months later and she looks at me and her, her eyes start to well up in tears. And she says, Art, can you come to set and cut his hair? And I was like, to set? Yeah. I don't know. You know what I mean? I, I like theater. So I'm thinking she mean like the theater, you know what I mean? Like this dude's a thespian, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. This dude's actually a TV, a TV star on a TV show called Leverage. So I started watching the TV show Leverage, which was the hardest show to watch at first. Uh, <laughs> But, and I'm like, oh, okay. And I go to set and that's when I get my first little taste of set. How does this 22 years old when I meet him? 22. So um, at that time, I must be at least, I had, a, I had a wife at that time. So I must, well, I, the wife I'm married to now is the wife I had then too. So um, I had to have been, he was 22. I had to have been like 32 or 33 years old. So I was a little, you know, 10, 11 years older than him. And so, uh, I just started inviting him to stuff that I would be doing. Like, and then our relationship started to build that way. And then we started to talk about, like, I only approached it as a barber and a client. Like, even though he was doing this stuff on TV, I never saw him as anybody but Aldis Hodge. And so um, I just treated him just like I would go to set or to the trailer, cut his hair. And then I would leave and go back to work twice a week. And then I started to learn, um, his mom started to teach me things that I needed to know about the business and stuff like that. And um, after our first season together, I could tell that it was growing into something more because we started to talk about finances and stuff like that he only he has a prius and i i remember telling him like man keep that prius don't ever give don't ever sell that prius keep that prius we're we're what 12 years later this dude still has that prius man and and um <laughs> we just started talking about investing and stuff like that and by the time we were done at season we did four seasons together by the time we were done with season four I was fully engulfed. Like he and our relationship had grown exponentially. And, um, and he asked me if I ever get to a place where I could have my own barber, would you be open to, to, uh, to traveling? And I was like, heck yeah. I just said, yeah, just because I, I enjoyed everything that we were doing then. And then my, I had my daughter when I, I had my daughter, I think about the second year, well, she was two. So I had my daughter and my daughter, I would take my daughter to set with me on Mondays because Mondays, Sundays and Mondays were my days off. My wife worked a full-time job and I didn't have a, we didn't have childcare. And so I would just take my wife, I would just take my daughter to set with me on, um, on uh, Mondays and the people on set loved her. You know what I mean? And Aldis loved her. And so it just kind of like their relationship grew as my relationship grew with Aldis. And so we just became really tight. And, and I think these last, these last, man, probably three years, uh, four years that we've been working together uh, with him being able to like have his own barber and stuff like that. It really, we, we're way closer than just, you know, barber client thing. Like, that's oh, no, I mean, you, yeah, you guys, yeah, you are like brothers. I mean, we, you know, we were in uh, Brooklyn for so long and you were, you guys were there longer than I was. And I was there for what, three months or more than that. And you guys were there the entire time. Um, and it's, it's just a, it's a special bond. And um, the more I've gotten to know him, as I told you, you know, kind of this year, I got, I felt like I really got to know him and he's just such a tremendous dude. He's a, He's a, a really solid human being, and as are you. You guys just, uh, you know, I feel like lucky that you and I happened to be in the hair and makeup trailer 
this, I think it was one of my first days on that set and we just, I don't know how we struck up a conversation, but, uh, I'm really grateful that we did. And we just kind of hit it. I I don't even know if I knew like who you were to the show or whatever. It's like, (laughs) Oh, it's a cool guy in the makeup trailer, you know? And then, and then we kind of, you know, that's what it's like on a, on a set for people that don't know there's you, you go in on a job and you know, I came in halfway through a season and you, you meet like 50 new people. You don't yeah. even know what half of them do. You don't know what their names are. And luckily <laughs> your name was Art and my dad, my brother, and my cousin are all Art. So I was like, I got it. You know? Oh man. That's dope. But, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's been, it's been so great getting to know you and, and, um, and to be able to have you on, on this show. And, um, it, it's just, uh, I hope we get to do it again. You know, hopefully we get to do another another season. We'll spend some time. But before I get to the final three questions, um, I'm just curious because this this pops into my mind for people that are listening and they go, okay, you know, I always talk like failures, opportunity, and you're talking about this opportunity with Aldis. You know, the downside is you do have a family and you're across the country from them. Uh with COVID, it, you know, it made it tough to travel and everything. Your wife did come to visit you a couple of times. I think the kids came maybe yeah, uh, at some point. Uh, so, but you worked it out. So just, just, a, just before I get to the final three, because I, I, I think that it's important to show that, yes, it's cool. Yes, your relationship with him is great. It's an opportunity. You have great partners. You know, your barbershop's still running, so you got your business there. But- how do you view, like, how do you get through that part of it? Like, what, like, was that something at the beginning that you thought, I don't know how I'm going to manage being away from the family for these huge blocks of time? Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, because I, yeah, uh, my family to me is my top priority. Um, and I wouldn't choose a job like I've, Aldis will tell you I've turned down jobs uh, because we've might, you know, we may have been away for a while doing something. And then another job comes up and he's like, if you want to go, we can do this. Um, and I've been like, man, I, I just need, I need to go home. You know uh, my wife has been very supportive in this process. Like I wouldn't do this. This wouldn't, you and I wouldn't have this conversation if me and my wife, if my wife, wasn't my partner in this whole thing. Um, because anytime I've ever gotten a job that, that takes me away, I'm always, she is my gauge. And so if she's like, I don't know if we should do this, then I, I won't do it. You know, even though the money is good, it's just, I wouldn't trade my, my family, um, for money any day. So, um, we've made it work. These, past couple seasons and, and some of the other jobs and stuff like that. And it's, she's super, super supportive. And so uh, it's funny, her and I was having this conversation last night and it's just like, I wouldn't do it. I would, I wouldn't do it if it wasn't for her. Um, I wouldn't do it if, she, as much as I love Aldis, I love her more. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Great answer. So, yeah. I'm going to text it's, it's him right now and tell him you don't love him that much. <laughs> he do it. Uh, and he, you know, the good thing about it is that he, because we're like, we're all like family. He never, he always understands if I say no to a job, he always understands. And he's, he'd be the first person to say to me, like, you should do this in, or you shouldn't do this. And if it, if it takes away from your family, you definitely shouldn't do this. And so, but my kids, I love the fact that my kids get to, to say that they uncle (laughs) is like, my son is ecstatic that his uncle's a superhero. You know what I mean? Like he's going to be a superhero. He's, he's my, my son's big Iron Man fan, but. He's going to be a Hawkman fan now. (laughs) We'll see what what happens. Tell him to ditch those Iron Man figures. (laughs) (laughs) Throw them in the garbage. Yeah. My daughter, she loves it, man. She, she always. I don't know if you've been on set when I'll get this random FaceTime call from my daughter and it's just her. And, and when, when I open it up, it's her and like four of her friends 
trying to trying to see Uncle Aldis. You know what I mean? Like, no, nah, you can't do that. Like, you know, she's so she trying to show her friends that her uncle is a celebrity. So, you know, that's, that's cute great. to me. So it is. And he's yeah, and he's yeah. uh, he's a good he's a good role model. Uh, okay, three questions before I let you go. The word no means what to you? Nothing. It means nothing to me. Like it's, I mean, it used to hurt me. It, like, you know, it used to feel like rejection. And so now I just, because I've come accustomed to saying no, when you have kids, you become accustomed to saying no. No takes a whole different uh, perspective or a whole different viewpoint. And so, um, um, I don't like, no, somebody tells me no, or no, just, it just means nothing to me now. Like, it's like, okay, all right. Well, it's just an opportunity for me to start something else or to come to find a different approach, uh, to it. What about a life, some type of phrase? It doesn't, not necessarily a mantra, but some, any phrase that's like a core life belief of yours when everything goes sideways, they kind of get you through it. Um, without, I don't want to make this a religious part, part, you know, religious thing, but, uh, there's a scripture, uh, I call it my life scripture and it's, uh, Psalms 139 verse chapter 139 verse 16. And it says, uh, every day of my life was ordained and written in your book before I had lived one before I had ever lived a day in his life. It was already written for me. And so I, take that and uh, apply it to every place that I am like this very moment today was written before you and I had ever thought it would happen. And so it, I find solace in knowing that I'm in the right place right now because this was an opportunity that was already written for me. So I just, I just really go by that. And, and, and then I, I have another one that Aldis and I had coined he even made me a pair of shoes because he knows I love shoes and he does too. But he made me a pair of shoes with the sand on it. We didn't come here to be good. We came here to be great. We came here to be great. There's a, there's a standard that we must lay down in the way we walk, in the way we talk, in the way we dress, everything we do, we have to do it with excellence. And so we coined the saying, like, we didn't come here to be good. We came here to be great. And so, you know, we kind of wow, live by that. Right dude, now. <laughs> this is amazing. Both of those, the Psalms, the scripture, and that. Wow. Wow. I love it. I got to pause before I even ask you the last <laughs> question because I love that so much. Last one. If you could give your younger self advice, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? Um, I definitely intervene at age 25 and um, I would tell my 25 year old self that uh, this day is the beginning of your true destiny. For 25 years, you've been living in somebody else's um, somebody else's uh, picture or somebody else's purpose for you. At 25, I think was a milestone for me. Not only did my car insurance go down, but uh, but I felt like that was the first day I ever spent alone by myself. And and uh, and so I would tell my 25 year old self, this is the very beginning of the great purpose that was was laid out for you. And so now just just walk, just walk right. I, I don't know, write your story, like write your story. This, the, the movie Finding Forrester, I don't know if you remember that movie or not, but yeah. that movie was a, a movie I watched when I was 25 years old that impacted my life, catapulted me into writing um, and reading. And I mean, I, I've always been a reader, but it just changed. It just reshaped my whole thing. So I would tell my 25 year old self that, this is the beginning of a journey that I promise you will, you will love. Even, even the bad times, even the hard times, you still love the hard times. Um, 
because the hard times don't last long. And, um, and as long as you keep moving, you can slow down, but just don't stop. Like you can slow down on this path, on this journey. It's okay to slow down, but just don't stop. Keep moving. Art Williams, that is what we call a mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) You're done. You passed your podcast test. That was awesome, man. I I can't thank you enough. I love the conversation. I love every time we hang out. Um, You're a great guy. You're, you got a huge heart. Um, I'm really glad we got to be friends. Um, I, I really am so glad that people get to hear your story and, um, Thank you. And we didn't even get into like the whole, you know, coining of the dope influencer. That's fine. You know what? We'll, we'll have you back in a year. We're going to work on you that tell, one. Yeah, but we'll have links to all of your, all anything that you want linked to. Um, definitely that book, you know, uh, that, that influenced you. I say you should, re- you should reach out to that author if he's still alive, because that would be really cool for him to even hear this conversation. I could tell you, having written a book, that that he knows that one life was changed in the uh, way that you just spoke about it, that's pretty awesome. I've never heard of that book. Dream, what was it? Dream, dream The Dream Giver. The Dream Giver. I would yeah. say- Bruce, Bruce Wilkinson is his Bruce name. Bruce Wilkinson, okay. I, I think he might, I think he may have passed. My, my dad uh, used to live down the street from him. Well, you know what? You get tell his family. I think that's a pretty cool one, man. I think that's a really yeah. cool one. I, I I can't thank you enough, Art. You're uh, you're a great dude. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What we do here is go back, 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 back. All right, time for the top three takeaways. We do it every week. Here we go. Number one: Just because you may not have inherited the most empowering narrative, doesn't mean you just accept it. You know, growing up in the the small town that I grew up in. No one actually ever really talked to me about going to college. So I didn't think it was important. Nobody in my family had went to college. Um, Everybody just kind of focused on finishing high school. So I was almost kind of birthed into a situation where I was supposed to be a statistic, basically, at a young age like that. I'm a young mom like that. Art changed the script. And so can you. Number two, this one's a combo platter of two things we hear often on this show. Part A is that a lot of guests talk about listening to that still small voice deep within. And part B is what I always say about life happens for you, not to you. If you open your eyes and look around. I'm walking to the library and I just hear this voice in my left ear say, what about your dream of being a barber? And it was just like me and you talking right now. What about your dream of being a barber? And I stopped and I looked to my left and I was standing right in front of the barber school. So I just went in and signed up at the barber school that day, man, and started on, I think it was a Thursday. I went in and signed up and then I started barber school on that Monday. Number three, it ain't easy. Whatever it is you're trying to do, there will be resistance, even from those that love you and are very close to you, sometimes especially from those who are close to you. And as I've heard Bishop T.D. Jake say, new levels bring new devils. It's not like you get to the other side of the bridge and everything is honky-dory. You get to the other side of the bridge and you have more challenges. Listen to Art. They use terms like border blockers. These were people that were standing at the at the uh, beginning of a bridge that you needed to cross over to get to the other side. But, uh, and those border blockers could be parents, could be relatives, you know what I mean? And, and then you get over the bridge, you, you fight through the border blockers, you get to the bridge, you go over the bridge. Then you got this whole other level of opposition that you're facing. Now, we always do the top three takeaways, but I'm giving you bonuses. I cannot help myself. I've got two more for you because these life mantras that are talked about were just too good. So I'm just going to give them to you. Here's the first one. I call it my life scripture and it's uh, Psalms 139 verse, chapter 139 verse 16. And it says, uh, every day of my life was ordained and written in your book before I had lived one, before I had ever lived a day in his life, it was already written for me. And so I 
take that and uh, apply it to every place that I am. Like this very moment today was written before you and I had ever thought it would happen. I love that. And then I got to add the mic drop. Here it is for you again. We didn't come here. We didn't come here to be good. We came here to be great. We came here to be great. There's a there's a standard that we must lay down in the way we walk, in the way we talk, in the way we dress. Everything we do, we have to do with excellence. And so we coined the saying, like, we didn't come here to be good. We came here to be great. All right. That is it. Art Williams, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I appreciate it. I loved our conversation. Thank you for listening. Wherever you're getting this today, I hope that in some way the dime drops and you hear something from Art's story that works for whatever it is you're grappling with right now. Um, If you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and and rate and review the show. Give it a five-star rating. Tell your friends about it. Share it on social media. Uh, All of that helps. Uh, You can also go to 10,000knows.com. You can get my book there. Same title, 10,000 Knows, How to Overcome Rejection on the Way to Your Yes. The audio book is coming out pretty soon. And um, the insiders community that I talked about in the beginning, you can go check that out at 10,000knows.com. There's also a link for it in the show notes. And there are tons of links for art. If you want to follow him on Instagram, you want to check out what he's up to. Uh, that is it. Have a great week. And um, thank you for being here. We know there are a lot of choices to uh, choose from with the podcast. And we uh, really appreciate you coming to 10,000 Knows. Take care. Take care.